Hey you, thanks for tuning into the Waiting List Podcast. I'm Long Long. I'm Daniel. And I'm Jacqueline. And we are three watch friends with a healthy obsession for watches. So sit back and relax with us while we chat with collectors, industry giants, and share some good vibes. Welcome to the podcast, guys. And today we have a fellow watch collector, Eric Lau, who originally is from Hong Kong, but now resides in the US. Welcome to the show and let's get straight into it. How are you doing? Thank you so much. Very well, very well. Thank you for having me. Right. I mentioned briefly uh, where you're from and where you live now, but could you give us a little more of your background, like uh, what you do and like, you know, I guess how old you are and, and stuff like that? Totally. So I, I'm 36. Um, uh, as of now, I have probably split my time sort of 50-50 between uh, my two hometown, I would call each one home, uh, Hong Kong and New York. Uh, I sort of finished my high school in Hong Kong and uh, come to New York to study uh, art school, uh, four years in Parsons School of Design. Uh, so went through all that and um, actually started my own company, didn't like that um, as much. We, we could dive into that a bit later. Uh, went on to like an advertising career um, and sort of did, you know, campaigns for sort of all sort of like Fortune 100 clients. Uh, so progress from a designer to an art director to creative director. And um, and in the midst of it, I had also sort of uh, become a, a photographic artist. Uh, I have put up so far 35 shows in around 10 countries about my street photography. Um, and on the, on the side, we also love traveling. We have done over 50 countries, uh, you know, from Sahara Desert to, you know, Amazon Forest to, you know, Patagonia. And um, we had also done uh, like um, a bit of overlanding and scuba diving in between. Actually, we are both, uh, you know, uh, professional scuba diver. Um, so, yeah. Um, and in, in the midst of it, we also find a watch brand that we will dive into. Right, right. Well, uh, you kind of done the interview for me then. <laughs> <laughs> Boom. No, but let's go back to one of the first things you said, which is, you know, you you do like campaigns for Fortune 500 companies. Like, what are the most interesting like campaigns projects you've worked on? Yeah, I think um, I would say one of the most interesting thing is um, like the Lego um, Star Wars X-Wing at Times Square that I did almost 10 years ago now. So it is still to date, the largest Lego structure. Uh, so we have a team from, it's a, it's a Cartoon Network, Star Wars, uh, um, uh, you know, like like a, a Lego uh, combination. So like couple of different clients. And, you know, the idea is to have the sort of most stunning in-person experience, right? So we have this sort of like one-to-one racial X-Wing and it's, almost like four scubas like wide and two scubas long and as a kid in the event you see the sort of x-wing come out from a huge lego box and smoke and mirrors and in a Times square we sort of hijack every screen possible and you see yoda and dark raider sort of like you know uh champing uh, like you know doing star wars stuff all over and uh you uh, get to sit in that star wars x-wing um, which is the largest Lego structure. And after you're done, you get your photo ops and then you sort of get, uh, you know, the tiniest style experiment which you put together at the sort of uh, um, like the building station on the side. So the kids had a really fun time and obviously logistically nightmare. Uh, we, we had a really good time as the creative and uh, the Denmark like Lego headquarters actually sent like 
you know, their expert in terms of, you know, uh, putting those together. So it was sort of prefabricated in Denmark, which is uh, the Lego headquarter. Um, then it was sort of, you know, put together back again with sort of steel beams, glues and whatnot uh, to form this sort of like gigantic Lego structure. Wow, that that is cool. <laughs> like, I mean, it, who doesn't like Lego? And I don't. I'm not sure if Long even knows what an X-wing is. Do you, do you know what an X-wing is? Long no Long? idea. Yeah, I thought I had a feeling, like because yeah. you had no reaction. Yeah. Like, um, let me explain. I have to explain this. I, I can't let you get away with not knowing. The X-wing in Star Wars is literally the the plane that everybody obsesses over, aside mm -hmm. from another plane called the Millennium Falcon, um, yes. because it's where the hero, um, the hero flies in it. Like and he flies through all the movies in it, but it, it's called the X wing because the wings are an X shape. Okay. Right. Okay. And the wings open up, right? Yeah. So they're flat, and then once he like uh, comes out of hyperspeed, they open up, mm -hmm, right, to make mm -hmm. it more maneuverable. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm so not making this sound. Yeah, cool, you're not. <laughs> like, I'm like, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. It's really... cool. <laughs> Wait, so you you know quite a bit about Star Wars actually. Like. Yeah, I mean, who do you? I mean, like, uh, look, yeah, I like to think that I'm, uh, you know, I have my priorities straight. You know, you have to, like, <laughs> as a guy, I think you need to know about Star Wars, right? Right, fair, fair. So to have that possibility of, you know, the project you did of allowing people to go in it on a one to one size Lego structure, like, I would travel for that totally. Totally. You know? Totally. Yeah. I mean, no, I, so I, cool. I must like, say a, a little bit that. of a little bit of caveat on the side, right? It, it was like months and months of preparation, right? Like getting, you know, the city department of NYC to block up the Times Square for us, getting the fire department to have fire trucks standby for the 72 hours when the X-Wing was blocking sort of like a couple blocks of road and other infrastructure. Um, there was, you know, like all sort of like media company that is involved in all that. Um, I must say, in a way, that had in that had in a way triggered my watch collection because um my, my sort of affinity to watches if you will um because like that monday i mean the event was friday sunday uh, friday saturday sunday right for three days straight um and that monday like we went to times square again just to you know take a couple pictures with my teammate and you know celebrate and whatnot and literally everything was gone there's not a bit of it right? i mean it's it's Times Square, so it's sort of incredibly expensive to occupy an hour of it. So, you know, of course, the next thing we know after Sunday night is like to pick things down and ship things away and all that. So, like, you know, uh, and it, it sort of triggers me to to start, um, uh, you know, appreciating something that has a little bit more timelessness, if you will, or a little bit more tangibility. Um, not that I don't appreciate experience of the whole Star War, right? But, but I guess as I sort of progress in my, you know, like live, you know, like I want something that I could hang my emotional onto maybe for a little bit longer. Um, mm. I, I understand what you mean. Uh, on the contrary, though, I feel what you just said reminded me of something that uh another guest we had on set like Masa masaharu from japan mm -hmm. and what is embedded in or my understanding of what is embedded in japanese culture is they love to appreciate things in the moment right yep. 
And this was uh, one of his uh, contentions on why limited editions are always sprouting from you know, Japan um, and why right. it works so well in Japanese culture. Because uh, one of the big events in Japan is the uh, cherry blossom, you know, when it comes right. for like two weeks, right? Yeah. And they spend like those two weeks just appreciating that beauty. And I guess, you know, I understand your point about you want something that is timeless, but then some things maybe aren't supposed to be timeless. And then right. you, you could be in the moment a bit more almost, right? Yeah. You, you know, it's sort of limited. You need to be in the present. Yeah. I mean, the, the campaign you worked on, I think three days is perfectly pitched. You know, you have people that, are fully aware, you know, of this event, Times Square, they're going to make it down. It, it's not one of those things where people can, oh, I can go next week. You know, you either go right. there now and you see Very it, time you know you're going to miss it. You, you don't know sure. when you're going to see something like that again. So, right, right. yeah, sounds such a, a great project to work on. But yeah, let's get into your watches. So what actually got you into watches? Can I just so, cut in um, for a second? You... Like, I think for listeners that completely confused, like, why is Eric on this pod? I think the biggest thing we didn't even explain is that he's part of Mech. <laughs> is this not like well, a I was going to come on to that. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I was going to come on to that. Okay. Yeah, uh, I mean, back, back to back to your, your question, right? So I think I always loved collecting. Um, sort of earlier in, you know, when, when I was back in Hong Kong, when I was you know, 14, 15 years old, like, you know, it was like various like sneakers. Actually, at one point, I have over 100 pairs of sneakers. And as I progressed in my photography uh, journey as an artist, as a photographer, I started to collect like vintage, like Leica camera from the 50s and like 60s and 70s, like mostly. And I sort of love the tactile, you know, I love appreciating object and the physicality, the tangibleness of it maybe just how it feels in your hand, how the finish is and how sort of like the gears work when you advance the theme and all that. Um, and I, I'm also very much into, I mean, I, I feel like that is my sort of four years old boy inside me, right? Uh, you know, when, when I was having all those like, you know, green army men that, you know, my relatives in the US would brought me like the sort of World War II, like green army man and then and the and Jeep. So I, I, since like very young, I had to collect like you know like military objects. Where it is like a World War Two jacket, whether it is like a military like water bottle, like you know I just appreciate the history of it, like how some of the things are made. And I haven't really thought about watches. And and in fact, like um, I sort of started like you know this process of Mary Condoling after I you know go pretty deep into collecting all three groups of these things, right? Like sneakers, cameras, and um, and military objects, and I, you know, I, I sort of bought very much into the idea of, you know, the decluttering will make your life very joyful. So I painstakingly sell, donate, give away all of my collections of all this free, and my apartment is like clean and clear. And I, I felt joyful, honestly, for maybe a, a like a short period of time, uh, you know, just to, you know, just to have the space and not have all this like clutter and things. And then I actually feel not so happy almost. And I, and I was missing 
interacting with the object. I was missing, you know, the community when I could, you know, like whether it's like sneakers or or like you know, um, like vintage camera community that that we come and hang out. So I was like, oh, but I I don't really want to go back to sort of buy back whatever I I uh, you know I have so and so quote unquote get out of right. And then I and and then I figured, oh, actually there are military watches so that is you know like vintage military watches specifically and they they assemble like you know the very much like like utility sort of like very sort of understated feeling the sort of like um like um um historical feeling almost that um that that assemble and i mean and look like you know being living in new york city the space i mean hong kong shanghai also obviously right Space is like a big problem, right? You know, like you had 150 pair of sneakers. The next thing you know is like there's no more place, no, no more space for clothes or other other things. Right. So, anyways, the great things about watches like relatively small, you could stow them away. So I I get very deep into you know World War Two, uh, you know military watch, and you know like um, there is like a eleven, a seventeen, thirty dozen, uh, you know specifically a bit more specifically on the British, uh, you know uh, World War Two watches. Uh, just because you know, being from Hong Kong and being exposed to culture, um, actually, I, I need I need to branch up a little bit to share this story because so both of my parents actually worked for the Hong Kong government for the longest time. So you know, uh, when I was you know when I was a kid, like you know, sometimes they have to work overtime. They you know, I would be in the office over the weekend, and I always saw this like arrow like stamp whether it is on like a stack of like a4 papers not that a size it's called a4 right uh a4 paper where there's like toilet paper where it is on like like a like a like a water tank and i was so when i saw the dirty dozen uh the omega and there's the like british like there's the sort of british military arrow on it i instantly feel like a very special connection because this was a symbol that I was exposed like since I was very young being not not being you know not sort of understanding what it is but I, I've just I've seen it everywhere and in fact it is sort of like the British uh sort of government property like uh stamp and it all sort of starts from their military watches and of course I also get into um um a, you know like sort of the bigger stuff like you know like a vintage sub like a vintage speedy and 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 then i sort of progress into a bit more like funky or uh sort of like slightly new vintage stuff um so recently i've been collecting like you know let's say the overseas gen one with the hero shade dial and so on and so forth and some other you know vintage jump hour okay so just going straight going back to the military watches right i i don't know anything about military watches well, yeah, hardly anything. I don't know if you know anything about it, Long. But like, are they difficult to actually find? And what is the? Can you explain the dirty dozen in like two sentences or three sentences? What? What? Sure, is sure. I don't think they are like difficult to find. Certain issues are, um, uh, like you know, certain things are a bit more difficult. Like, let's say I'm only interested in military issue watches, right? So not the reissues or you know, like, like, you know, things that were made, like watches that are actually issued for the military and that will somehow get into the watch market, right? Uh, so those could be like difficult to come by in, especially, you know, like decent condition. Uh, to explain 30 dozen in two sentences, uh, so in World War II, actually the end of World War II, 1940, 
five. Uh, so the British military had uh, come up with this sort of like specs of like wrist watch uh, um, uh, that needs to be like matte, you know, so in order not to reflect like light, it needs, needs to have like loom on them in order to see in the dark. It needs to have a second hand and not a small second. Like that was a thing back then to, you know, easily sort of hack. And, and also it, it comes with like a bunch of specs. And the reason why it's called a dozen is because there are 12 companies that made all these watches. They are all very similar because they are all like done to specs. And of course, certain uh, brands are harder to come by than others just because of lower production numbers. So that, that is the story of Dirty Dozen. But uh, the, uh, one last thing that is interesting is that uh, by the time the Dirty Dozen was like produced, the World War II has almost come to an end. So, you know, some of this have not seen actual military action, so to speak. Oh, okay. So they're like like new old stock then? Yes. they. A lot of them also get repurposed to sort of um, like, you know, South Africa or, you know, other Commonwealth country, you know, when, when, when they, when everyone try to, uh, you know, reuse the military surface, so to speak, right. Uh, they got into the hands of uh, sort of many, you know, different country that is under the British rule or, you know, the Commonwealth structure. Uh, so they, they went on a life on, on, on its own. And, and a, a lot of them actually, the condition is not that great because, the stealing technology and i mean after all they are watches that are almost 85 years old now right so it's they, they have been through some stuff can i just add there's like um i'm not sure if this is like a must but they have certain criteria they have to meet so it's like it needs to have a blacked out the numerals need yes. to be in arabic and so it's clear yes. to read and then loom hands right and this yep. is more, but basically they have to fit this criteria because they will actually use. Yep. Yeah. Yes, totally. Yeah. So in in fact, that that that's really one of the reasons why, like let's say you know from IWC to Omega to you know other brands, the outcome is very similar, and and they have to fix the lock bar, so there's no way that the lock bar fail, right? Like mm-hmm. even with one this one fix, the lock bar is broken. Yeah. Um, you, you know, you, you, you still keep it. Um, so, so yeah. So were these made by British companies? No, actually, the, a lot of them are made by Swiss companies. So you had, you know, IWC one, you have JLC one, you have Omega, you have um, brands that are no longer around like the Grana. Uh, so no, not, not at all. Um, in fact, okay. what, what is interest, what is interesting is, um, there are companies who had made watches for both the airline side and, you know, the Nazi side. Oh, right, yeah. I mean, they're just trying to get business, right? <laughs> um, I want to ask, so if they're like 12 different ones, I, I, I assume that there's 12 different brands then that were making them? Yes, yes. So which one's the rarest? I think the Grana is the rarest and that's sort of... Um, you know, only because of the production number. They were like a so smaller company, if I'm not mistaken. Of course, Omega one was, I mean, Omega has a much bigger production capacity, for example. So that was like a bit less rare. Um, and the most um, the most sought after one, one of the most sought after one is the Longines one. 
um, the size is quite a bit bigger uh, than the rest and the case design is slightly different with sort of like step case on the side, uh, much like other long jeans in, you know, like the early 1940s, like the sort of uh, uh, salmon dial with the Roman, like, you know, uh, three, six and nine ones that you probably have seen in various vintage watch occasion. Um, so those those were the sort of more desirable one, and and what is interesting is uh, a lot of collector try to like get the whole set, and that's you know becomes the military watch collector challenge. I I mean I never got that bug. I, I you know, uh, so I just sort of like had like a couple of those, and you know, is that what would you say in military watch collectors' terms is like the holy grail? Is it getting a complete set of the dirty dozen, or is that that's definitely. That's definitely one of. I mean, are, there are also others like, let's say, you know, um, the Ben Rust Type One and Type Two, right? You know, you probably have seen it like pop up in auction house here and there. Um, very distinctive case. In fact, the case back you cannot. Read. So there are certain design elements that are interesting, right? They has this sort of like very matte finish, you know, trying to not reflect any light from the enemy when they sort of like sweep the spotlight in the battlefield. If you have something shiny, most likely there's like either equipments or human beings there, right? There's no nothing like shiny, like polished metal in the nature um you know the back of the type one and type two the military version uh is actually non-removable right so very interesting design like choice uh to service the watch you pop the crystal and take it from the dial side instead of another way around uh just so there's like less parts and there's like less uh you know chance for it to fail really uh, and I, I find it tremendously interesting. Okay. Um, you mentioned, like, obviously you're from Hong Kong. And we always on this podcast talk about the watch collecting mentality in Hong Kong. You know, it's very, very strong. But right. actually, you know, in Hong Kong, there are many people that collect many things, such as, you know, Gundams, cameras, um, cards, oh my God, yes. Dragon Ball Z cards, po Pokemon cards, Lego figures. You know, do you think that's part of the culture in Hong Kong, that, that collecting mentality. Um, or is do you think it's because Hong Kong is so small, it's more visible? I, yes, I, I think like definitely like the smallness of the proximity of people, right? In fact, like when I come to New York for the first time, like we were in Wall Street and like, I mean, I was like 13 or 14 back then. I literally asked my tour guy, like, you know, what is to see in Wall Street? And he told me about, oh, like, you know, we need to check out a high rise. And of course, as, you know, as someone from Hong Kong, like that's sort of nothing uh, like, you know, really interesting because Hong Kong has actually twice the high rise than, than, than New York. I mean, not that not that I'm proud about it, but, you know, it, it is just what it is. Um, anywho, to answer your question a bit more directly, I, I mean, I think one thing is um, people are very close to each other. So they could sort of compare and you know um look at each other and i think that's sort of the like like goes for the competitive mindset a little bit and i almost feel like hong kong is one of the least um like friendly place in terms of collecting things so if you think about the price of the property and the space you've got and and i think there's almost a element that you know if it's such if it's so hard to do something it almost makes you want to do it a little bit more 
right? Because like, like almost like a reverse mentality. If you like, I like almost most of my childhood friends whom I know in Hong Kong collect some sort of things, and you know the list goes on. That you know, cameras, Gundams, like cars, like you know, like like Legos, and they had you know. And they had very tiny apartments, but they had filled their apartments <laughs> with, you know, stuff, right? Uh, so that I, yeah. I I find it fascinating. I just want to say that I have always thought the same thing because if you take the taxis and the Ubers in Hong Kong, they always have stuff lined up like um, on the <laughs> dashboard, like tons of right. things like Hello Kitty or like a bunch of mini cars and so on, and. Okay, I guess like within the taxi and Uber, I don't mind because as a passenger, you're like, this is cute. It says so much about the driver, right? But right, I imagine right. this being like inside the house, like what it looks like. So I oh never could understand, like, yeah, I could never understand like why your house is so small and you want to still accumulate stuff. Um, right. But then I thought about it and I thought, okay, because collecting is obviously like a very personal hobby, right? Where it's like a lot of the conversations are going on inside your head or online. So right. Hong Kong being such a lonely place where like, yeah, you don't really get to connect on a deep level with a lot of people. You have to like resort to collecting, I think. <laughs> right. That, that, that's, that's, a, that's an interesting way to look at it for sure. Yeah. But it's, it's so real. Like, I, I mean, I, I had like a full picture in my mind when you yeah. mentioned like there's like the, the Uber yeah. with like the little car, yeah. car model yeah. or like the little Hello Kitty, like the yeah, like the head, yeah. Right? yeah. Yeah. Like um, if they fill the front windscreen and then oh, they go over to the God. back windscreen, don't they? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Actually, I I mean next next I time need to I get one for Long Long. Put it, put it in a Bentley of me of my head. Yeah, yeah no, thank like you. This, like this. <laughs> oh my god! But I actually think um, these are really good points that you both raise. I, yeah, probably it's a combination of those things. I think in Hong Kong, um, property is so expensive, and the the area you live in you don't really invite people into your home you know mm. uh, as a get-together thing right um, right and then to express yourself you know some people are living literally yeah they have a home but they may be sharing with their parents and right. their own sanctuary their own sp only space is their bedroom and um that's the only place where they can express themselves right you can't say with i'm gonna put a fireplace in you know i'm gonna redo the drive <laughs> you know you can't even say i'm gonna express myself through my car right right so maybe it's through these small things that people get really deep into and i think it's a very good point you mentioned about everybody being in close proximity with each other i never thought about that point um where that competitive nature does come out <laughs> i mean anybody sure. that isn't Chinese, all they have to do is go to a Chinese restaurant, right, and see how noisy it is, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Totally. And, and I mean, like, I, I have met a bunch of collectors in Hong Kong also. I, I would say, like, like, the collector community so far, as, as far, I mean, of course, everyone's experience would be different, but the number of brands they focus on and, you know, like tends to be a bit more mainstream, I, I would say, as far as, like, you know, at, at least, you know, for those I have go. Um, I definitely had met people in New York who had went down to a bit more of a rabbit hole, right? Let's say in New York, I met this 
collector who collect like fiberglass case watches from you know wow. the 60s and 70s and like and they you know he find like um um like almost new old stock example with like the box and all the really strange like oval shape right like watches and super like mechanical movement and funky funky color like i'm talking about like like yellow cases you know and and the, the, there's like stripes going on from the cases onto the dial and so so forth um so like and, and i've also met military watch collector who had drawers and drawers of you know parts and like cases that you know he yet to finish some project and and i would say you know like in, in hong kong at least so far i've definitely spent less time in hong kong versus new york because my watch collecting had only started sort of six seven years ago and my majority of my time is in, is in new york but i i would say you know i definitely see more focus if you will um in terms of the type of model or or the type of brands that appeal to me right I think that point you make may support your idea of the fact that people in Hong Kong are close together and they have that competitiveness because in the States, you know, it's bigger geographically. People are less on top of each other when they maybe collect. It's really, truly an expression of themselves to themselves. Right. But in Hong Kong, there's always that element of, yeah, I need to compare with the other person as well it's a it's a more of a dialogue right like yeah i'm wearing this today to this occasion yeah but moving on um you said you had this now collecting um direction of jumping hour why jumping hour what is it that you love about jumping hour complication and by the way i i like that complication too thank you thank you Um, anything that jumps i like right i i would say um of course like 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 a day also jump right like don't get me wrong but the jumping okay, hour <laughs> <laughs> sorry well well but i mean the, the jumping hour what's interesting and i find it like so sort of tempting to stare down you know your watch at like 50 not like 59 you know like 58 and like anticipate a jump and just see that sort of like little rebound that's that happens, I guess, sort of watch like watch nerd would would understand what what I meant, and and I and I definitely don't get like as much of that in sort of other complication. I I would also say like as a designer, um, the jump hour is such a different way to present information, right? Like um, and we always take we always take things for granted a little bit, you know, like the way we are being taught, the way we are being brought up, like, you know, um, you know, when we are brought into the society, like what a watch should be, right? Like, you know, the stereotypic watch is sort of this three hand design, right? Like this hour hand, this minute hand, and this second hand, maybe small second, right? But a jump hour is such a rethink about um, the whole information design, if you will, right? Like, you know, like a big sort of jumping digit. Sometimes it's on the 12 o'clock, sometimes it's on, you know, like six and some, it could be on other places. Um, and the second, sometimes it is like a regulator style, long hand. Sometimes it is, you know, on my, like Ben Russ, which is like the 50s, like diorama. The second hand, do not display the second. It is a star that actually, just rotate around so you can't really i mean there's a little like red dot like in one of the point on the star so you can kind of tell but it 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 just 
it's so much more creative way to think about time, right? It almost got me to think about like when I was in the Patek Philippe Museum a um, couple of years ago, I saw this marine chronometer like from the 15, like late 1500s. And it's two things really strike me when I see it. Um, there is a free access gyroscope, right? So, you know, the same thing you saw in the drone. So sort of cancel out, like, I mean, imagine in this in the rough sea, there's like waves coming out of you. So they, like, you know, they have to cancel out all the sort of kinetic energy that could sway the watch into inaccuracy. So I, and I, I thought to myself, that must be the, you know, the most complex sort of famed engineer uh, almost 500 years ago. And the second mm. thing is, mm. the second thing that really struck me is um, there's only the hour hand. There's not a second hand. Of course, there's no minute hand, right? Like, 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 and of course, like we talk about this concept, hey, let's meet up in the cafe at mm. uh, like 3.15, right? But, you know, we, we start, I mean, three years old, your teacher tell you how to read the clock, right? And you, you know, you are taught there's like days, months, and hours, and minutes, and seconds, right? Um, and 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 I think like for me, it's almost something that I never questioned. But I I, I would and, and when I see the marine chronometer, I was like, oh, of course that made perfect sense. No one had an appointment at four point five, right? That that doesn't matter. Uh, you only need to know how many hours you're going. So the marine chronometer and the compass are the two things you need to survive a long voyage, right? I was like, like geeking out on the history a little bit. So you need, what you need to know is, I mean, you have like a very inaccurate map of, of course, that was a primitive nature. Um, and then you need to know which direction you're going for how long in order to estimate where you are, right? Um, but then to go back to the jump hour, I just thought it is such a rethink about, um, like watch design um, and we are not layering complexity on top, right? There, and there is this sort of like very um, like two camps of argument in terms of like, if your watch is a jump hour, it, it, is that a complication, right? And there are arguments that say no, because well, you are displaying only the hour, you know, and the minute and the second. So it's not like any extra information, right? Um, and there are, you know, argument that say yes because any extra mechanism that enable sort of some sort of time reading is a complication so i mean i i, I mean i can see a strong argument on both sides i don't think that's necessarily the most um you know like you like like you know i need to take a side on one thing i just thought it's interesting to mm. think about that mm. okay um so how did you get onto what long long mentioned earlier mech watches because that uses a jump hour and what role do you play in mech watches so i'm the creative and i'm the designer um you know of of the of the mech is is a free trio three three of us right so um Carlos is sort of like you know the overall vision and uh which you, which was also on the podcast earlier um you know um, and and Judd, another finder, is the um, is is the watchmaker, and he actually spent time like nine to five on a watch bench at Vetron FP and and whatnot. I sort of come in as a, a bit of an outsider. Um, my collecting journey was way sort of shorter than Carlos and Judd, right? So 
like a lot of times when I see a new watch, I mean, new watch for me, right? When I discover a new watch, when I go very excited, like the chances are they have already seen it. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so I, I always come with this sort of, it's like, hey, check out what I find. It's like, oh, and, and Carlos and Joe will be like, yeah, like this, you know, like, hey, check out this also and check out that too, right? So I, I think I almost come in as someone who is a bit more fresh and, you know, have, like I have, I have a clear background of had being like having designed and made a lot of things and um and to to answer your question from another angle which is a bit, bit of a long answer is um like when when i was in my um sort of commercial creative career and there are you know other than lego thing there are you know like we branding project we have done there are you know like we have done a runway show that has 24 that is 24 hours continuous right in miami beach and that was like a like a really fun project however a lot of times i find myself um sort of executing i mean design is at the end of the day um a way to answer a question for a client right let's say your client wants to say this or your client want to say that your client want to communicate high-end and premium with this coffee shop or for example right so you you are really speaking for someone so i really dove like uh, so I, I got a bit frustrated after like you know being involved in you know in the this like having done a few cool campaigns but i really want a bit more of a personal voice right after you know four five six seven years in my career career so i sort of swing very far into my uh you know fine art career like getting super focused on that right um start like approaching galleries like start like you know like doing exhibitions after exhibitions sharings after sharings i have done sharings from new york to taiwan to hong kong to italy um you know i have had I I saw all my uh, equipments and and uh, start doing just my phone. So I was actually working with Apple uh, for the short iPhone campaign. It was actually featured in multiple billboards. That was really fun. I was doing workshop at Apple. But then um, I would say, if you think about like commercial design, which is what I'm trained, is on the very left side of the spectrum, right? Like it's commercial and art, you know, element. I think the fine art sort of swing very heavily on the right side. Like it's totally personal. Like I do what I want. I don't really give that much of, you know, a damn about, if you will, like if, if it's sell or not, because I want to almost want to protect it. Like it's my sort of personal expression. So um, selling or not is not really my focus that much. Um, in a way, I almost find myself a little bit lonely, right? Because I'm pursuing this journey on my own as an artist. Of course, I have made a lot of, artists at friends and you know i'm in the community but the journey itself is largely personal and in the commercial design world it's largely you are in a team of 15 20 25 maybe more people and you are like a in a way a small gear even if you're the creative director in the whole food chain right i really find the map is a bit in between of the spectrum right and by that there's twofold um I think because there's three of us and we all come from so different background, right? Like I'm from Hong Kong, moved to New York, trained it in design and, you know, had done commercial and art side of things, but never made like, you know, never done any industrial design or physical thing as much, right? Um, Judd is sort of born and raised Caucasian in you know North Carolina, moved to Miami, 
right? Carlos from Venezuela moved to Miami, then New York. So we are literally from three continents, and and I think like um like like the team is at a size that like I could hold my mat and say I designed this, I did this. Of course, like everyone input, right? Um, but there's also uh enough of like other factors like you know other opinions like that we value everyone's input that like it actually doesn't come out as exactly i imagine in the best way it's possible right like like the fine arts i'm doing on my own so it's like oh i do what i want and it, i it kind of unfold in the way that i anticipate the man because there are, you know, other inputs and there are, you know, like a collaboration going on. And I think there's a healthy dose uh, of, you know, my input and their input. And in, in, and in terms of, um, you know, you know, I, I was talking about the spectrum, right? Like the commercial and the art spectrum, right? I think it is also, at the end of the day, it is still a business, right? So we make business uh, choices, right? So like, how many we are making, what price point, uh, what size, you know, should we make it? But it is still very much artistic enough in terms of like, oh, we want to do it a certain way, we don't want to do it a certain way. So as much as there are uh, some business decisions involved um, in many regards, there are like very much enough artistic, um, you know, way, like, you know, consideration that keeps me excited. Okay, I think that's a very fair answer. So basically, you're saying that, yeah, you could, you have to think of a commercial way to express your own personal interest of design, right? Yeah, totally, totally. Yeah. Right, I want to, oh, Long Long, please. Yeah, I have a question about just the design, because you're saying that if you worked commercially, you kind of go to a client, and then you're like, what's the message you want to give out? And then you design around that to to like basically communicate this right so right. with mech what was the actual like message you guys were trying to send out that's an interesting question and in fact like we are sort of our own client like that is that's what like you know the intention of the brand right we all want like a jump hour watch that we cannot get in the market a fully in-house like something that um um uh, sort of a bit more wearable in size and like thickness and also unique. And and I, I think like, I mean, like we are both watch lovers and I almost feel like the word unique or it's almost one of the most like overused words, right? But something like that tells time sort of structurally different, right? And to dive into it a little bit more, dive into it a little bit more, a lot of the jump hour had, like an opening at the hour dial to display the jump hour. There's also like a minute disc that display the sort of like, you know, which minute you're at and there's a second disc. That's sort of like a lot of, you know, jump hour design. We want hours to, and, and that, I think that leaves like, and I mean, in my collection, there's a, a, a couple of watches like that, but that leaves a, a big part of the dial sort of like stagnate. By that, I mean, there's no sort of hands or things that runs through the dial. And when we decided very, very intentionally to want to engage the full dial, and that's why, like, you know, on our design, like very initially, we already had this sort of like sapphire hands that goes around the full dial. Um, however, one of the reasons why 
um, a lot of the jam hour did not have a big sort of hand is or they're very skinny hand right like like sort of like a and then then somehow they like in a way look a little bit lonely almost on a dial that has only a minute hand but not an hour hand because of the hour is jumping um is because um you know like when when the when the minute hand um go over the hour and inevitably at like six or you know, at 60 or 30 it would cover up the jump hour right so that design wouldn't really work and that's why the material sapphire comes in so you can still see through it uh we have to make it hollow to make you know to, to sort of like conserve the power because the big and uh wide like you know sapphire hands is quite heavy um but, lo but long story short like you know it, it was like very uh intentional in the way and you know we we, we thought to ourselves is there a watch that we all want? So at least like three of them is already sold to ourselves, right? And like, is there something that we genuinely feel passionate about? Like, you know, it, because if it is something that is already in the market, why wouldn't we just go buy it? Why why go through uh, the hassle uh, and, you know, the, the sort of like rupted road, you know, to, to sort of create it? And, and that, that was sort of the answer, the Mac one. Okay. Okay. Right. Totally taking this interview in a right angle turn right now. Um, one of the more interesting things that I know about you is that you spend a significant amount of the year living in an expedition truck, right? right. So what is an expedition truck and how did that idea come by? Expedition truck. Uh, let me, let me answer, maybe let me answer the latter question first and then I'll come back to the first one. If you don't mind. Expe um, so, I have always, I mean, all, I, we have always wanted to travel, my wife and, and myself, right? Um, I had, since very young, always wanted to always look into world map and wonder what is happening at this corner, what is happening at that corner, what is the life like in this country and that. Um, uh, however, um, living in New York, I think like, you know, we and we had wanted to do the RV or living in a truck and explore for a very long time. Um, the the life of living in an RV is different than a normal travel. Reason being is, um, if you travel quote unquote normally, right? Let's say you're planning like a three weeks trip to Argentina, you are doing secondary research, right? Whether it's from Instagram, whether it's from Lonely Planet, whether it's from out of books or you know like friends, um, you had pre-made certain decisions, right? And you have to book the hotel. Maybe you have to book like inner city flight. Uh, we have all, we, I'm sure that we have all been on a longer trip and hope we spent a little bit longer on this destination. It's like, oh, like, you know, instead of just staying two days, we should have stayed five days, right? For example, or vice versa. Oh, like I, I'm ready to go now. I don't really want to be here, right? Like, you know, like I'm, I'm done with this place. I re really rather spend much more time in the next destination. I think the interesting thing about the format of overlanding is you could make a decision on the fly, right? Because there's no, everything you have is within your truck. I mean, for the most part, like you still have to refill water and food and whatsoever. But as you, you just go sort of one way trip and, you know, you just like, you know, go on, 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 on your own. And however, um, living in New York, it had never makes sense. And I'll explain why. Um, a lot of places we already did road trip 
in the past like 10 years, like in the first 10 years in our life, right? So to drive to some places, you probably have to drive like 15, 20 hours in order to get to somewhere we have never been before. And the New England area, right, which is northeast of the U.S., is relatively densely populated. So it's not really quote-unquote overland friendly. So you really have to go to the West Coast or at least the west of Mississippi. Um, and it's it's always easier to, hey, why don't we just hop on a flight and, you know, in 10 hours, you're in Patagonia. Uh, why don't we hop on a flight and then the next flight and two more hours of bus and the next thing you know, you're in the Amazon forest, right? So it, it, you had like a bigger cultural jump in a short amount of time. So like as much research I've done, it had never made sense. However, when the pandemic hits and uh, I sort of get, you know, I'm a bit of a high energy person, as you might be able to tell by now, um, a bit of an yeah, extrovert, yeah. <laughs> right? Maybe may obvious. Yeah, so Chinese Carlos, could... that's what you are. <laughs> right, right. I'll shut you up. <laughs> right, totally, totally. Yeah, and, go and on. I, I, I get, I get almost like very restless, like staying at home. Like I, I think the first week actually went by fantastic. I can finally do this. I can finally like do that at home, like tidy up that closet or whatnot. But by the second week, I'm just like walking back and forth at home and wondering what the hell can we do. And culturally speaking, we never get the chance to work remotely. Right. So I'm sitting there thinking like, oh, my gosh, we don't have to go into the office anymore. How can we like make use of this? Right. Um, then the next thing we know, we fly to like, like you know, San Francisco and pick up an RV and, you know, then a swap to the second one. And we have done 25 state and over 20 months worth of travel you know, throughout, you know, most of the America, you know, mostly on the Midwest and, you know, the West Coast part, right? Um, and to back to your question of an expedition truck, um, a couple criteria. So if, if when you think about an RV, um, you know, the full name is recreational vehicle, right? Um, uh, in a way, you can think about, I think a more, more accurate um, description is a home on wheels, right? And to unpack it a bit more, it is really a house, a box on a truck, right? It's two parts, right? Like the, the house is how you get around. I'm mean, sorry, sorry. The truck is how you get around, and the house is where you live, right? Like it's really, yeah, you know, it's good you got that two right, That would be very weird. Like the house right? would be you around. <laughs> right. Truck Otherwise, it's the house is a house, and the truck is a car, <laughs> right? Or the truck is a normal truck. <laughs> uh, anyways, um, one thing that expedition vehicle is different is the way they connect, right? Um, on expedition vehicle, the house, I mean, on a normal RV, they just put a bunch of screw, like industrial string screw, uh, and they glue them together. However, the problem is when you go over rough terrain, when you go off-road and all that, uh, when you go over mountains and like dirt road, like miles and miles of it, everything got shaken loose because your stress to the truck is transferred to the house. So you had, you know, cabinets that are loose. You had like, you know, your fridge that's like, like shaken up and all that. In an expedition vehicle, your whole house is actually suspended on its own suspension system. So if I drive my expression truck and you just kind of shake it, and for those who is on a podcast, I'm I'm sort of like doing this gesture of shaking profusely on an imaginary arm, like 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 truck. You could shake it around, and nothing will get nothing will get shaken loose, right? Because it's sort of like like floating on a bunch of spring. Um, 
a couple other criteria is like way better insulation so you can go to much harder or colder places and you know being relatively confident climate you had way more water so that I, in the expedition truck and in fact like we have roughly like 250 liters of water that could last you two weeks almost if you you know take like a short shower per day um, so the idea is to you can stay off grid for a long time. You could go through places that you do not have water supply, right? Um, you you are much more self sustained. So that that is the idea of an expedition trip. And of course, there are other which you have more clearance. The tires are more off road friendly, so on and so forth. That on maybe so, expedition. So how 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 much of the year are you in this expedition truck? How many years? Sorry, how many? Sorry, not years. How many? How many months in the year? Sorry. Uh, I would say almost six months, maybe. Like so, almost half. Wow, time. that's yeah, a lot. If you right. said that you spend fifty percent of your time in Hong Kong and fifty percent of your time in the US, that means all of your time in the US is an expedition truck. Oh, I mean, I, I think mostly I would spend one or two weeks per you know, per year in Hong Kong, that's as much as I've been able to come back. Um, so my, no, my, my time is really is, mostly... My question is, like, you're spending that long in it, why don't you just live in it? Oh, like, in and, and abandon the house in New well, York? Yeah, if you can stay there for six months, right, you clearly can, you have no problem staying in oh. there relatively long term. So why don't you just, like, I, I, do it full time? I, I, I would need to answer this in two parts part one is when i when i mentioned i stayed there for six months it is properly split into four to five trips so the longest trip we have done so far is two a bit over two months right so we don't stay there that long stretch of a time and in fact on the road we have met this sort of like couple and they're pretty famous in the overlanding world and they live like solely on the truck you know 16 seven years they have done 60 five countries with their truck and uh, before i start i have the utmost uh aspiration to be them some form of them right and, and live it live, live that life for two time i thought to myself oh my gosh now we get to work remote i'm gonna drive everywhere and explore each like city and state and every street and talk to everyone and it was really fun but however and again these are timer research right that like we have experience and now we can really tell because you know from from their blog from social media you could only imagine right um by now i totally understand i do not want to do that but i i cannot come to this conclusion until i have done a good amount of that right like i i realized by the fourth week i'm ready to go back into a house i mean as big or as nice of a truck, as much water you have, as much like you have a fridge, you have a stove, you could take hot shower, you could like, you know, do your business. There's toilet, there's like mattress, you bring your own pillow. It's very nice. But by the fourth week, you're like, oh, actually, I, you know, I, I, I could probably, you know, go to a normal house that you could walk from the living room to the bedroom to, to, to you know, to, uh, you know, to the toilet, right? Um, after being trapped in, you know, like space that is two meter by three meter by maybe 10 meters, right? Um, right. Um, I don't, and, and I have, uh, and my aspiration had turned into uh, admiration of, oh, how, like, I don't know how you have 
right? So, so it's, yeah. it's a transformation. So what you're right? saying is uh, you're on the road to detestation. <laughs> right, right. That, that That's a fair way to say it. That's a fair way to say it. So, but like, how much do these things cost, Eric? So when, it's an interesting question. So when we bought ours, um, the new, I mean, we bought it, used it. The new one is roughly like 400,000 US. Um, uh, now the new one is almost 600. So it had like, you know, the inflation had caught up on us, I suppose. Um, so these things are, they, they could cost as much as a house, really. Um, they are definitely yeah, not that's cheap. Not cheap. <laughs> that's half a mil. <laughs> yeah. Where do you park right. them? That's a really uh, good question. I love that, that you asked everyone that, asked because that was the first, right. that was the question I asked straight away. Yeah. Right. So because, so what's interesting is the truck had never come back to New York City. Like all of our friends in New York City had asked like, hey, can we check it out? And I'm like, you, you're very welcome if, you know, if you happens to come to wherever we're going. Mm -hmm. So we always park it in an airport long-term parking. So okay. that's where it, now it is in Oregon uh, because we drop it for some maintenance. Uh, yeah. It had lived it in Las Vegas, um, Denver. It had lived it in Portland uh, in front of my friends, like Backyard in uh, 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 Portland, actually. Uh, so all over major airport that we could fly directly to New York. Uh, in fact, that that is not the first solution that come to mind, right? So when we pick, uh, pick it up in um june 2020 the idea is to drive from west coast to east coast come back home i mean home, like real home like brick and motor home in new york right uh to load it up pots and pans pillows blankets whatsoever we need and start driving out again um however the truck had never made it back because I got so distracted on, you know, oh, there's this like Yellowstone National Park that we've never been. Hey, why don't we drive another three hours to the Grand Teton? It's amazing. Oh, let's check out Wyoming. We have never been there. So I got very distracted. And at one point, like, oh, why don't we just, I mean, why don't we just go, like, why don't we just drop it, go home and come back and, and do this again? Mm -hmm. um and that 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 had become our, our solution okay right so it sounds like you've been to some amazing places you mentioned a few there my last question of this main interview is what's been the most interesting place you've visited on this that episode? is a that is a very tough and tough tough question i, I would say it, it's almost i mean all those places that you had seen on the map like a lot of them are living up to the expectation i would say you know like um um like yellow stone is definitely mind-blowing you know we had um we had really beautiful time at glacier national park um you know like we had beautiful time at like um olympic national park um washington i, I would say I, I would mention two things right um, I, I really can't pick one. I would say in the summer, in the Washington state, it's really magical. And the day along and the weather is dry, so it's never like rainy uh, during those times. And you're out, you know, by day you're doing some work, you know, for, I mean, I work, I still work remotely. In, in fact, I, I speak at Overland Expo about, which, which is one of the bigger uh, Overland convention about, you know, working remotely and how do you juggle uh, you know, working full time and also living on the road. 
So it's sort of the stigmatizing, if you will, like this is like a retirement activity, right? Like you could potentially do both. Um, and so at night you are looking at this like starry night, the sky is super clear, um, the weather is like just perfect. And like there were many, many times like we were star glazing um, in like with our camping chair, like on the, the truck on the side. And you even look like you really feel very small, right? Like there's mm. all these like beautiful mountains around you. There are, you know, like sometimes like the deers like come out at twilight and they would look at you and they would go away. Um, and you look at the sky and you look down to your truck and you thought to yourself, oh, like, what you need is really within this um, 20 feet by 8 feet by 8 feet box, right? Like, you know, you had your water, you have your water heater, you have your bathroom, you have your bed, you have your, you know, like your necessity. Like, you really don't, you, you like, you really come to a magical realization in a beautiful place that you don't really need that much. And I think that, and of course, in, in another way, like, very humbling is you you are tracking everything that that you spend right and and by that i mean like like i mean we are both in some sort of house or our apartment or some sort of building right everything is so automated right like you push a button lights come on you know you you flip open a laptop the wi-fi is right there you go to the like you go to take a shower hot water right it's right there like in the in, in the live overlanding even it is it, this is like one of the best expedition expedition truck there are limitation right so in order to take a shower you flip on the water pump right so the water lines are running and you flip on the water heater um you can't do it in reverse otherwise the water heater will heat up nothing right um you think about you know where your wastewater is going after the shower right like if is that tank full or not right you think about you have to dispose your human waste somewhere um, we we always love to call ourselves the expert of toilet because we have used all different three different major toilet system. Not going to dive into that, but feel free yeah, to thanks, uh, exactly. <laughs> uh, over <laughs> over this podcast. But um, um, and and you just become and and you let's say like you blowing dry your hair, you see how much your battery is coming down. You know you're charging your laptop. You put up your Starlink satellite. You know, uh, so everything takes some sort of effort and you come to realization how much automation we are in and how much autopilot we are in and um there are so many things that we don't you know take it for granted after the overlanding right um you it also sold it to long long i can tell like long is totally <laughs> for it yeah no because you know what i'm actually the reason why i'm like so quiet is because i'm thinking like Okay, I totally agree what, with uh, what you're saying with, you know, you just sit on a chair and you look up and you're like, I actually don't need anything. Like, this place is beautiful. Life is beautiful, blah, blah, blah. But then you're like, okay, uh, say you live in Hong Kong, right? Where do you go to, like, look up in the sky and be like, wow, this is beautiful? No, that, that and, and, and yes, no, that that's a very true question because, like, um, there are communities of like star glazer in the US, right? Mm -hmm. And they have said, like, in fact, in the past, like, e even the US is a huge country. There are like remote, remote parts that we have been that then, you know, miles of, and miles, there's no, pe like, very little people in, in those areas. 
you do have to go further and further away in order to enjoy something quote unquote pretty basic, right? Like mm-hmm. a clear sky and free of light pollution. Um, you know that you 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 could you know do star glazing, and that mm-hmm. doesn't come easy, especially in in Asia where the density of population is just much more. The the, the light pollution in the city and such more proximity. Um, but to to oh to answer your question a bit further, Daniel, like there was this place, right? Um, this is one of my very favorite places, um, and one of the reasons is I've never even is heard this the of second this. place. This is second place. Okay. I, I I I have never even heard of this place. So we have bought our we have bought our ticket um to fly back to New York, right? So we just had a couple of days to like we just had like ten days to queue on a row, and we just driving and exploring. And you know, in in the U.S., like when you drive between state on the highway, like let's say you are going from New York to New Jersey, you have this sign that say "Welcome to New Jersey," right? So we drove past this place and it's like, welcome to Arkansas. Like, and it would challenge like people, like, you know, like, what do you know about Arkansas? Like for me, it's like, I don't know anything about Arkansas, really. Like I I know like one of my very first job, my boss is like from Arkansas, but that's really it. Like, I don't, I mean, I may be able to name like one or two like basketball player who was from there, but that's, that's really, I can't even name more than two cities, right? Um, anyways, like, so we were there to just to like, you know, take a break from the driving and there's like welcome center, whatever. So I saw this place called Eureka Spring and I put it on Google. It's in the direction we are going and there's a little star. So all other places had a circle done and this place had a star and it is like an hour and a half away. And I thought to myself, oh, perfect. Like we're just drive that 90 minutes and then take another break and see whatever see, and then keep going right so 90 minutes later we find ourselves in this place called eureka spring and before we know it we are in this sort of like mountain sort of uh victorian building sort of like twisty row um like small street and everything is sort of very well decorated small shop it's not like the street mall and big shop and we feel the energy is so different, right? And we park our car. Um, I just want to go get a coffee. So we ran into this place and like, and instantaneously, and we thought we would just take a call, grab a coffee and go. That's, that was the plan and keep going into the direction we explore and we're just further west. Um, and we, we, we instantly feel like the energy of people is quite different. And I don't usually feel that. And there is an, there's a lady who is like maybe 50 something that is in the coffee shop. So I, I start a conversation with her. I was like, Oh, like, you know, can you tell us a little bit about this place? Like, it seems like quite special. You know, we just arrived. We were just kind of driving or exploring on like a month long kind of driving around trip in the America. And the lady told me about, she used to live like four or five hours away and she would come every weekend, like for years um, you know, because she loved this town and she was actually tearing as she speak to me, right? I mean, of course, I, I, I lucked it out to talk to the maybe the right person about this place. And she told me about like she had been to this place, like she was known as the Rainbow Lady because they had parade in this place and that's her sort of rainbow costume. Uh, anyways, long story short, now after years of commuting back and forth from her hometown to this place, 
She moved her entire family to this place, and now that her grandkids could enjoy growing up, growing up in this beautiful town, and like she was just very thankful about they made the move, and it's like the best decision in her life. And the next thing you know, we end up staying like five days uh, in this in this town, and you know, talking to people, exploring like Victorian architecture, talking to people who own the small shop. Uh, it is a very tight knit community, like not. Commercial, not not on like you know, I I I would say if you if you look at like the top fifty city in the U.S., maybe it's not even on there. So I just find the idea of you know like this sort of like small town and surprise element like that just leave a very strong impression. Versus something you might have a preconceived idea and notion, and you sort of learn about it, and it's like maybe more or less up to your expectation. Um, and and the people, like I think that's sort of like really. Um, like, I mean, don't get me wrong. Like, we also love like landscape and you know, like culture, history, and all that. But the people, uh, you know, and each time you go is such a unique experience, right? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I'm going to check that on Google. If anybody who's listening is from Arkansas, you know, reach out to us and tell us more about Arkansas. Right? Totally. <laughs> post it. I promise I will post it on my stories. Yeah, I'm totally. sure. You know, totally. it's a lot better than Eric. You know. Says or knows. Um, Definitely. Yeah, that finishes the main interview. We now go on to the reverse round. Eric, what would you like to ask? Uh, I would say so. From what I understand, like you know, you know, like you are based in like you know Hong Kong and Shanghai. Long, long, you're based in Hong Kong. I would say if like money, career, um, and everything is of no concern. And you have to move to one new place with one watch. What would that watch be, and where are you going to live the rest of your life? Wow. Are we choosing okay. a country as well, right? It could nice. be a city. I mean, like let's say Brazil was a huge country, right? It goes from the desert to the rainforest to like big city to small town, right? So maybe um. maybe a city. Okay, I'm definitely naive with this, so I'm just saying because I haven't lived in the U.S., but I will move to the U.S. Okay. Just because like you get to enjoy all the seasons and every part of it's so different, like you said. Uh, I definitely right. connect better with Westerners. I think, even though I'm Chinese, I just think uh, from the way I speak and how I like how I connect. Operate. Yeah, and I'm very. Um, if you get me in the right group of people, I'm very transparent. So it's like I need to be with people who are comfortable having deep discussions, and I don't, and I struggle with that in Asia. So definitely the West, and I would say U.S. And I love being in nature, so it will give me all the things I need in terms of like hiking, like you said, camping, and all this kind of stuff. Um, right. And then what? Maybe you would love overlanding. Yeah, you know, I was like. I I should go to like all the places that you said because <laughs> I I love the kind of stuff where you're like you just sit on a chair and you don't do anything and then you just say okay I have an I have enough you know right uh but then what watch what, are you bringing? yeah uh it has to be a sports watch though because you have to basically I think wear it uh every, well I will want to wear it every day and actually like maximize it right. Uh, yeah. Can it be a watch I don't own? Yeah. Oh, oh my totally, god, that's totally. what I was thinking. Okay. Because then totally. I was like, can I? Can it be? 
it's like all hypothetical, right? So can it be like a yeah. okay? Then I want like a, a vintage Daytona, <laughs> 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 like a obviously if like I say monument, you guys would be like, what the fuck with the price? Okay, so if you just ignore the price for a second, you only have one watch for the rest of your life. And it has to right. be versatile. It has to be like timeless, and it actually has to be practical. I know it's a bit like fragile to watch, but then I can't see it being like a modern day De- Daytona. I still find that a bit heavy. So I think like right. a vintage Daytona. Yeah. Maybe with the screw down crown, so you get a bit extra protection. Uh, yeah, like pr- protection. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> protection. Yeah. yeah. With the coat. Yeah. That, that's um, a great watch i love that. i think it's a it's a really good question so um i'll go watch first so the daytona is very high on my list but i think i may have to go for the sub right mm. again i would go for a neo vintage sub because i want one which isn't so flimsy um and i don't want something so modern and i pick a sub not actually because I really like the sub, but because I think of the practicality of it and it allows me to do water sports in terms of diving. You know, I could wear mm-hmm. it for diving and it could be practical. Do you dive? Yeah, I'm like, dive. you don't even dive. <laughs> like, I don't dive, do but this sub. is a hypothetical, isn't it? Hypothetical okay, fine. Question. Right, hypothetical. Like, chill out. Jeez. No, okay, because... <laughs> You have to be hypothetical, but you also have to I be have. like realistic. What kind of lifestyle do you actually want to live? Because I don't see you on a bit diving. Yeah. If I if I had okay. if I had enough time, yeah, yeah I'd take that up. Okay. I'd give it a go. Yeah. And then in terms of a uh, place, yeah, I think it's very interesting um, hearing Lung Lung's answer because there's so many similar sim- similarities um, in I guess how we think. Um, when you said the stargazing thing it brought me back to a time where I was in the Lake District and it was a clear sky. I had never seen a sky full of stars like that. And that feeling of being really small and then subsequently your worries and then just melting away because you know your time on this earth is literally nothing compared to the time of earth. Right. It's an amazing feeling to have. You know, I, I miss yourself to nature, you know. Right. So I again would pick somewhere which is heavily natured, away from uh, people, um, mm. and that may be because I've been brought, you know, in cities quite a lot. Um, but I think my answer would differ slightly from London's because I don't know the US very well. I don't know all these beautiful places. So I can't exactly say a specific place because I've never been. But the closest I could pick to that, where I want to be, is uh, Cornwall in the southern part of England. Mm. Right? Oh, okay. Because you have, um, the air is different there. You know, every time I go there, my skin comes back like glowing. It's so fresh. And you have the cliffs looking out onto the sea. Mm. You have like the marshlands. So you have a lot of different type of terrain already over there. Um, And that I remember feeling very fulfilled when I was there. 
Uh, it's a special that, feeling. That's such that an has... amazing feeling, right? Like, you yeah, it is. Nature. It's very hard to replicate that feeling. Therefore, it's very mem- that that particular trip is very very memorable for me. Um, however, it that's out of the places I know. It's still not ideal though, because England gets really cold, and I'm thinking about when right. I get older, I won't appreciate <laughs> the coldness. Yeah, but you know. Um, Maybe Utah would be your maybe Utah would be something you you're interested in.、It's, maybe 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 beautiful maybe, landscape, you know, quiet.、Um, maybe if this podcast ever like goes anywhere, you know, Long Long and I will remote work out of an expedition <laughs> truck and go to the U.S. and just like let's go. We can we can we can work remotely and just explore everywhere. Yeah. Right. And then that that would be pretty awesome, actually. Can anybody fund us for that? We can like have a、Boom. video crew that can do that, and that would be just so fun. Yeah, like everybody listening. Let's get this going. Yeah, fund <laughs> us to do this trip of a lifetime, and we can put it on Netflix. I, I can give Tenneco a suggestion for an expedition truck park.、Yeah. Maybe so, not so much for the watch park. You, you can be like one of the ten cars that actually is behind our expedition truck to maintain us、yes. and to you know that isn't shown on、totally. the film. Yeah, totally. Here's a spare tire. Here's more, more water.、Yes. Give me my coke now. Totally, totally. Right.、Um, well, that's a really good question. I enjoyed answering that.、Yeah. We're going to go on to the pump pusher round now. Okay, are you ready? Yes. Let's do okay. that. Okay. One. You've been to many places. Where do you want to go next? I think I really want to go to Antarctica. Actually,、um, it had been on our list for a long time. In fact, we almost went. We had a bunch of things that sorted out. I, I think it's such a different landscape, and like, there's no passport that's required. Doesn't belong to anyone.、Um, which I mean, really, the the nature in the world should not be. Like you know, like set up with borders and boundaries, right? It's all sort of human imagine and human construct, really. But I, I really want to go check that out. That's sort of the furthest from civilization you could get, and really want to see what it's that like. Okay,、uh, number two for this next one, you can choose、uh, which one you want to answer. Can you、okay. tell me what's the most quirky, or if that's too difficult, the most interesting or Most delicious food you've eaten. Oh, that is hard.、Um, I would say, I mean, I, I grew up in, in a pretty basic, like upgrown. Maybe that's that's part of like we have went to various pretty good food experience. But one thing that I really enjoy is the tapioca in Brazil. Um, there is just like that sort of freshness of like mix of like tropical fruit and the like sort of crunchy tapioca. It's almost like boba, but not really. It's sort of like a little bit extra.、Um, and that place I really miss. Like you know, if I could,、um, if I had only one chance to go to one restaurant before you know, like like a big meteorite going to hit the earth and the whole. Planet has to end. I would order one of that tapioca drink <laughs>、uh, uh, from. I think I think the name is Donna Vitamina, and I was mentioning this like very passionately to my Sao Paulo colleague, and she told me like you have literally tell me nothing because Vitamina in her language really only means like mixing something. 
So, <laughs> like, when, when I thought I tell her something very precise, like a restaurant name, it's like, oh, like, it's like, like, Donner's like late, like a lady who makes something. So, like, it's really like a maybe almost generic. Well, you are selling name. it to me. I, I really want to taste it now. You yeah, know? like, it's, it's almost a bit of a mix of cultures. It's like the, all this, like, tropical food power and also a little bit of almost oriental, like, right? Like, like, okay. Maybe, maybe that could be the next big drink. Right. Yes. Um, Who knows? Number three. What is the best traditional food in Hong Kong? Oh, best traditional. I mean, I always love wonton mean, right? Like that's oh, such a good. that's such a like basic. Um, I suppose maybe, and I'm also a bit extra attached to it. I mean, of course, a growing growing up with it. Um, like, uh, but there's like more than one food that you grew up with. Like, you know, there's like fish balls, there's like, you know, like, uh, gaidan zai, right? There is like also the food that you grew up with. However, maybe my connection to that is a bit extra because of my grandfather, um, which I lost when I was like nine, which is just almost, um, 25 years ago now, she used to be like a street vendor who made wonton mean, right? Like, a, mm-hmm. I, I had never tried it from what I remember. I don't think he made it at home. It's kind of like a business he does like way before I'm born. Uh, but maybe because he does, like that's why I feel a bit extra connection. Okay. Next one. Uh, one thing that you love about Chinese culture and one thing you love about Western culture. One thing I love about Chinese culture, I think the the technique of family, really, um, as much as, um, I mean, of course, I've only experienced my family and every family is different. But but I, I really feel like um, the the idea of, you know, you always had someone to lean on, to fall back on, is what make me confident to explore. And and that doesn't mean exploration in the literal sense, like you go to the jungle or the forest or you drive the truck into unknown, like maybe not literally that. It could mean like, you know, most of my friends are, you know, like bankers, doctors, like, you know, like, uh, like alternate accountants, like more sort of, if, if you will, like um, traditional elite high school graduate type of career, if you will. I, I, I really thought if, you know, I haven't grew up with my family, like support, um, I might not be, I might not have the confidence to, oh, like, let's go to New York and be a creative director and be someone in the creative design industry. Um, that's That was, I mean, look, like now, since my circle consists of a lot of people who are doing the similar things, it doesn't feel like a speck of a jump. Um, back then, it's quite governmental leap, right? So um, I think like that's what I treasure about, like, you know, uh, Chinese culture. Um, of of course the food also um, Western culture um, I would say the open mindedness is something like I really appreciate and everyone there's no sort of like um, set model like no sort of right or wrong and like there are so many ways to 
do different things, right? Or like, like, like I would say, I think, I think that sort of create a bit of space and opening. There's no like, you know, oh, you should be doing this. You should be doing at that at this age, right? You, you like, you're expected to do certain things, right? I think they like, like to Floyd's example, like we, I met this person who had this truck, which is. Three times the size of mine. They bought a military truck, and you know we had a long conversation about truck that I'm not. I'm not going to dive into. And the second time we met up, we go to their place, which is two hours from Seattle. Uh, it's sort of like a jungle-like landscape, and they have a house in between. And we get to talk to their parents, and they. So we had a lot. We stay over there with our expedition truck, and we had a conversation. They had a sailboat for. Like a long part of their life, and they actually sail around the world twice. And my friend, like you know, who had the big military truck, which I thought was so sort of like adventurous, had you know, had had grew up in that environment, right? Like that the parents who raised them had you know done this, like you know, you like, and I would almost argue, like you know, driving an expedition truck in the most remote part in the U.S. are not remotely risky compared to that. Right. Imagine you are sailing around the world. You are like thousands of miles away from help, from civilization, from any sort of resource. Right. Like that idea is like completely. But anyways, to to that point, I, I think the idea of being open uh, is what a treasure. Okay. Right. The last question: um, What's the most annoying thing about living in an expedition truck? The most annoying thing. Yeah. Oh my god, there are so many. Um, <laughs> I don't want to make it sound undesirable, but let me let me think about that for a second. Um, I would say the most annoying thing really is um, the lack of space, right? Especially you, you, you really don't feel it in the summer because you spend so much time outside, right? Like like star glazing, you know, like checking out the videos and and all that. In the winter, when the sun goes down, like let's say five, five thirty, right? You know, in the North America, um, for most part of America, um, you like you know the the temperatures start to drop, and you as much as you want to spend more time outdoor, you you are kind of stuck in like a box that is like very small, maybe smaller than like the smallest apartment, right? That that ever built and. I think like like even even though you understand you are in this like fast nature, um, you still after like three or four weeks you still get in a sense like claustrophobic, and it's almost funny to think about that because you, like the likelihood are you are in sort of like miles and miles of open space, but you because it is cold out and you don't want to spend that much time in the cold, right? Like it's literally like freezing temperature. Um so you are kind of stuck. So you could get claustrophobicness in an extremely open space. Like you're in Utah and like you could draw like a hundred mile radius and there may be twenty five people around you. Right. Mm -hmm. But you still get claustrophobic. Okay. All right. Well Thank you for participating in this uh, interview. We enjoyed our time with you. Um, you're probably like the the only guest where I haven't been jealous of their watch collection, but I've been very I'm very jealous of the experiences <laughs> you must have had on your on the road with your expedition truck. You know, some of the places very you've kind. been to, um, I'm sure, is a podcast in itself. You know, to go through all of that and 
I did consider myself relatively well traveled, but you know, I love that attitude you have for life, the appreciation you have for nature. Um, also the fact that you went and did it, um, and live a life that is very different, you know, to, I guess, a lot of people. Um, yeah, I'm absolutely so jealous. You used to take more photos and put it on your Instagram. And I look forward to seeing that. Very kind. Thank you for having me. It's a fun conversation. Okay. Well, thank you guys for listening. We'll see you on the next pod. See ya. Bye. As always, thank you for listening to the Waiting List Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have. And if you have any questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to reach out to us at the Waiting List Podcast on Instagram or via our private accounts. We'll see you on the next one. Bye. Bye. Bye.